0: You're listening to an ACCA podcast.
1: And hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for the second Echo Open Artist Talk. Um, we are bringing together artists from our current ECHA Open online project. My name is Bianca Winata Putri, and I'm the Public Programs Coordinator at Echo. To begin, I'd like to start by acknowledging that today I'm speaking to you as a visitor on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to extend my respects to elders past, present, and emerging of these lands, and of the lands on which you are all joining us from today. I'm zooming in today from my living room slash home office. I am a Chinese-Indonesian woman in her mid-20s, I have glasses on and I'm wearing a red shirt and I'm sitting close to my computer so you can only see my head and shoulders with blank white walls behind me. AKA Open was conceived in March 2020 in the early days of the pandemic as a way for AKA to remain open to and engage with our audiences while the physical gallery was closed. The aim of the project was to ensure that we could continue to work with and support contemporary artists during this time of uncertainty, continuing ACA's focus on commissioning new work and furthering our organizational mission to do art differently. The project began as an open call invitation to Australian artists from all backgrounds, career levels and practices to submit ideas for projects that could be presented in a digital realm. We were humbled and thrilled by the extraordinary quality and array of proposals that we received. And while we were only able to commission six projects for this inaugural digital commissioning program, we are truly excited about the breadth of ideas that were submitted and what this might signal for the future of exhibitions and art making. ACA Open comprises newly commissioned works by artists Archie Berry, Zeni Beg, Leuli Eshragi, Madeline Flynn and Tim Humphrey, Amrita Happy and Sam Liblick and Sean Peoples. The works have been released over August, September and October period, and they're available on ACCA's new digital exhibition platform for varying durations, particular to each work. If you haven't already, Please do go to ACCA.Melbourne and follow the links to aca Open. Um, I've also included the link in the chat if you'd like to access the work um, and each work is available again uh, for a particular period of time. The works at aca Open respond to the unusual times and cultural conditions in which they are produced intended to be engaged with online, they also addresses a wide variety of particular concerns that are unique to making art for the digital realm. As seen in these projects, the digital is more than just a platform to present or enable the creation of works. Rather, the different ways in which artists engage with the digital realm, challenge its use, perception, as well as its strengths and limitations, invites us to reflect more closely about what it means to be human and live in the world today. The format for this evening's discussion will be three 10-minute presentations on each project, followed with a panel discussion and Q&A session. Please feel free to add your questions to the Q&A feature throughout the event. These questions will be monitored and moderated by my colleague, Miriam Kelly, and we will endeavor to respond as time permits. It is my great pleasure now to welcome our Eka Oven artists, Leuli Ashragi, Sean Peoples, and Zeni Beg, who will speak about their projects tonight in that order. So I'm pleased to introduce our first artist for today, who is also a curator and researcher, Leuli Ashragi. Ashragi's practice and research are committed to centering indigenous presence and power, sensual and spoken languages and ceremonial political practices through performance, moving image, writing, and installation. Ashragi's echo open work, Aoa Auli, sorry for the pronunciation, comprises new writing, moving image, and animated drawings reflecting their growing artistic engagement with indigenous futurisms, data sovereignty, digital literacy, Non colonial and decolonial museology, and citizen driven cultural memory initiatives. Without further ado, please welcome Leoli.
2: Alofalava. Hi, everybody. Um, thanks for tuning in. My name is Leoli Ishragi. Um, I'm going to have uh, Miriam bring up the first image for you. I'm tuning in from Mbandwa, Alice Springs, in the lands of the Aranda Nation. I have worked as an artist, curator, and researcher for almost 10 years. As an international indigenous fa'fafine person from the colonially divided Samoan archipelago, having lived and worked in Australia and Canada, I know only too well how tenuous relationships to visual culture can be in the diaspora. You're looking at images from a work titled Paper Skin Gesture. And I forgot to uh, describe myself. I'm uh, a dark brown, uh, like brown complexion, dark black hair, and eyes. Uh, wearing a, a cobalt blue T-shirt and stunning beaded earrings by Cedar Eve, an artist from Montreal. Um, I'm in a second-floor bedroom um, with the grey sheets of on the bed behind me and white walls. Um, tuning in from Mbondwa, Alice Springs. I say diaspora not only as I've lived most of my life on other shores besides those of my ancestral homelands, but also as a product of the European colonial project. That means we are born already diasporic to who we are, where we come from, and where our ancestors were headed before the epistemic, physical, and spiritual violence of colonization. Part of my work as an artist mediating some of the most disturbing dehumanizing impacts of white supremacist museum practice includes mourning and healing rituals. In my 2018 ceremonial work, Paper Skin, gesture, I laid out printed pages from the South Australian Museum in Tarndanyanga, Adelaide, where ancestral remains from multiple great ocean cultures were on display. Miriam, if you could uh, click the image, so yeah. Despite years of polite requests for a culturally responsible shift, museum management obstinately kept our old people on display until late 2019, well after this protest. I wet my then long hair, massaged coconut oil through it, wept over the images, ripped at my hair, and wrapped myself in emergency blankets before leaving. Uh, If you can click through the images again, thank you. Um, and now go to the second tab. Thank you. Intangata Nuu developed and performed in residencies in Western Canada, Hong Kong, Honolulu, and Sharjah from 2017 to 19, and navigated all the languages and territories of my relations that I visited in mid 2017 through a multilingual performance honoring the binds of colonialism and pre-colonial kinship that connect us. I wanted to bring the living histories of the coconut tree ancestor tuna to bear on consumption of superfoods in the West, such as coconut water, macadamia nuts, cacao, that are staple foods in indigenous estates that span the Great Ocean. So here are images from the installation in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. And some of the residue from the performance as well. I'll click to the next, thank you. Released in May this year, Tafa Oata is a dawn work from the recent future of 2025, meditating on Finafa Kolone, or colonial impacts. In this work, I undid the gendered binary framework that European missionaries imposed on our language and worldview. To platform the indigenous gender spectrum of Fafafine Fatsama in kinship structures. I also wanted to represent through a flashing Masina lunar presence, interspersed with futurist poetry, how Samoan visual culture can look dynamic online as opposed to the bureaucratic museum collection portals. I combined line work animation with a poem on affirming our indigenous senses of pleasure, time ceremony, and governance. This is a still of the work. You can click on the links there and have a look. If you go to the next one. My most recent and most ambitious digital work to date, Awauli affirms my intention to locate, connect with, and honor the Measina, treasured handcrafted belongings, and Iloa, genealogical and ceremonial political knowledges that are imbued in playful and rare works of lama, candlenut ink, and u'a, paper mulberry bark. If you can scroll down a little, thank you. Our cultural genealogies remain disrupted and imbalanced by the absences and estrangement experienced with the vast majority of our cultural belongings being held in cold and sterile European and North American public museums, archives, libraries, and private collections. Perhaps in 2025, my deeply divided, colonized and traumatized Samoan people and archipelago will sound, look, and feel softer and kinder. The Siapo Viliata, or animated barcloth, as videos that are linked by poetic verses that you see here are an elegy to the ingenuity and creativity of the ancestors of all Samoan people. Like me. The majority grow up dislocated indigenous peoples of the diaspora, sometimes at home in the voyage, sometimes torn between conflicting epistemic and political frameworks. Awauli is an offering to the ancestors and to the young who realize the futures of wellness and balance we so desperately need and hopefully deserve. What I haven't written notes about, um, if you click on the archive component, this is, um, I think, the first international Samoan art history archive with links to works written, video works, etc., by artists um, from the diasporas in the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, and also people who are living in the Samoan Islands, which is divided between uh, an American colony and a former British German colony.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Leo Next, I'm pleased to welcome Sean Peoples, a multidisciplinary artist with an interest in imitation, appropriation, and collage. Informed by extensive research, his work seeks to integrate and parallel disparate ideas and concerns, often employing networks and models as a visual device. His ACA open work titled Off World is a compilation of fragmented and sometimes jarring animated films employing visual tropes from film, television, and the internet. Drawing upon cosmology and the digital archive as an open source for speculative fiction and historical reinterpretation, Peoples has constructed a metaphysical galaxy in which free-floating signifiers imbued with cultural politics drift through space and gather together as a melancholy mise-en-scene of collected artefacts arranged in the form of filmic memento mori. Over to you, Sean.
3: Thank you, Bianca. Um, I'll just start sharing my screen now. And hopefully that's all working. So, um, yes, my name's Sean Peoples. Um, I'm a tall man, um, sitting down though, of course, uh, slim build. Uh, I've got wild brown hair, Errol Flynn-type moustache, um, I'm wearing an orange shirt and I'm um, currently delivering this from my spare bedroom. Um, there's um, the clothes cupboards behind me. Um, I'm an artist. I have a solo practice. Um, I also have a collaborative practice um, and my collaborative practice goes by the name of the Telepathy Project, uh, which is a project I've been undertaking for a little over a decade with my artist work partner, Veronica Kent, who's um, now relocated and is working from Bruni Island down in Tassie um and uh, the telepathy project has been about kind of exploring alternate ways of communicating and being in the world and uh, we've principally done this thing through things like telepathy and dreams um, my focus today though is um, about my solo practice and um, more specifically my work that i've made for Acker open which is an online film called offworld uh, which you can visit at offworld.tv or through the akka open website Um, Before I talk directly about the work, though, I thought I would give you a little bit of a backstory about how the work came about. So at the end of uh, last year, 2019, I had an exhibition at Station Gallery in Melbourne called Cubism, Surrealism, Tourism. And one of my inspirations for that uh, exhibition was coming across a story about the ancient Greeks believing in a uh, cosmological symmetry to the universe uh, with a spherical stationary earth at the centre um, from which the sun and the moon and the planets all rotated around and the logic followed that this symmetry would extend to the presence of two or more land masses on earth which would balance out what was from the greek's perspective uh, the known habitable world and so it was thought that without a southern land mass or what we now call australia that the earth would Topple over. So, uh, more recently, with further research, I've discovered that maybe this story might not actually be true. Um, and there's some debate about whether the ancient Greeks really believed in this theory. Um, regardless, uh, I like this theory, this world theory, because it, it it kind of represents a desire, I think, to live in a balanced world, or to assume that we should be living in a balanced world. Um, and I like that strange kind of um, circular logic that assumes that there must be a southern landmass. Otherwise there wouldn't be a Northern one and vice versa. Um, I also like this vision conjured up by the flip side of this theory, which is the dark earth um, or an earth from an alternate timeline, one where Australia doesn't exist and is therefore um, you know, an earth sort of unbalanced or off kilter. So the launch pad, which is what you can see um, on the screen now, um, is from the ACCA Open website, which has this vision of the Earth without Australia, um, represented here as a sort of digital 3D model slowly spinning around in space. Uh, I also like how this vision of the Earth has other symbolic potential, particularly as a symbol for sea level rise, where we could imagine Australia totally submerged underwater. Um, It also functions as as a placeholder for imagining an unknown world and the desire to discover and potentially conquer it. Um, it also um, references recent cons- internet uh, conspiracy theories um, which doubt the existence of Australia altogether. Um, and I also like the fact that I haven't been able to really kind of confirm whether this story about the ancient Greeks um was actually you know um, true or not. Um, I think it also says something about the, the problem of misinformation and researching things online. Um, so this 2019 exhibition um, used all of these different kinds of ideas as a metaphor and a, a launching point point to explore um, like an increased sense of imbalance and unease I think many of us are feeling about the modern world and the times in which we're living. And so some of the ways I explored this in the show was to paint a picture of an alternate reality or a timeline in which, or an alternate timeline to the one that we're living in, but to also pose the question that we might, in fact, be living in that alternate timeline, and that the real timeline is actually being lived by our alternate selves. Um, So... um, the exhibition featured a collection of mostly like sculptural and photographic works, uh, with the focus being 36 handmade wooden nameplates, which is what you can see here. Um, similar to those that you find in kids' bedrooms or on kids' doors, uh, which I designed on the computer and then cut out on a CNC machine. Um, there's a one nameplate for each Australian Prime Minister since Federation placed in this large chronological grid. And you know, um, for some prime ministers, they were prime minister more than once, so that there's, there's more than one name tag to go along with that. Um, the work was called Lord of the Flies Time Machine. It's a kind of propositional thought experiment for the viewer to imagine every prime minister as a child living together on a sort of um, Gilligan's Island um, before any of their political persuasions had cemented themselves. So most of the imagery that featured in the work were um, um, you know, trains and horses and butterflies, You know, the kinds of things that children are often, often interested in. Um, this is a close up of um, the work for um, Andrew Fisher, uh, which was a wooden carving featuring his name and also a unicorn. Um, so this grid of prime minister works was flanked by a collection of small sculptural works and a bunch of photo manipulated prints that I created in Photoshop. And these digital collages were remixed and distorted imagery featuring Australian politics, global political movements, things referencing social media, lots of space imagery, um, together to kind of help paint this picture of a parallel universe to our own. Um, I also just wanted to share this one very quickly. This is this was one of the photographic um, prints. Um, the inspiration for this one was imagining an, an Australian biotech company which has turned famous photographer Bill Henson into a young man and his photographic subjects into old ladies. So um, my work for ACCA Open builds upon a lot of the thinking and the kind of aesthetic approach I developed for that station exhibition. In particular, one of the overarching ideas that I, I wanted to kind of um, communicate in the work that I've made for ACCA Open was to illustrate the concept of an unbalanced or an alternate universe, but to do so through a series of short films rather than through sculptures and photographic prints. And so um, upon visiting the Offworld website, viewers are presented with a, a film. Um, there's not really much else going on. It's just a film that starts playing straight away. Um, but the film is disguised as a sort of YouTube playlist. It's a compilation of fragmented and jar, sort of jarring animated videos um, using visual tropes for movies and television and the internet. And my, my hope is that each of these stylistically different films can um, help parallel that feeling of alternate universes using different aesthetic styles to explore the same core idea, but from multiple perspectives. And this is also where the title Off World comes from. It's sort of skewed or confusing rendition of different visual worlds. Uh, I'm going to spend a few minutes just um, going over some of these vignettes um, to hopefully illustrate how the work explores um, these ideas in different ways. Um, And if I start going over time, Bianca, feel free to jump in and just let me let me know. So the image that I've got here is a digital 3D rendered space scene. Most of the works that I've made were made using um, sort of 3D modeling and um, maybe some um, photoshop and that sort of thing. Um, So this is a 3D rendered space scene of a view from a satellite looking down on this alternate earth. So this is a, a model of the earth minus Australia and the space junk floating by, which is accompanied by this sort of slow, spacey dream-like song. And the slide featured here is of um, a, a newspaper, which is the edition of their, the Herald Sun, which was published shortly after the Serena Williams cartoon controversy from, from around a year ago. Um, for those that might remember, or maybe you don't remember, it was a cover that was filled with illustrations by cartoonist Mark Knight, which served as a sort of call to arms for, for free speech um, in the media. Um, this this um, is, a, is another um, scene from that same short film. Um, this one features the I stopped these um, trophy, um, asylum seeker trophy given to Scott Morrison during um, his time as Immigration Museum. It was given as a sort of gift. Um, and, and this one is a, is a coin um, a coin that was given to members of um, Melbourne's Acclimatization Society. It's a society that doesn't exist anymore, but um, in the early days of Melbourne's founding, it was responsible for the introduction of many foreign animals and plants to Australia, in the hope of making it um, sort of more suitable for the settlers to live in and, and more comfortable. So each of these is just kind of either backdrop by that by that vision of the earth or a backdrop by space and these these items are just slowly kind of floating through space um this obviously is kind of a different approach again this is a sort of was inspired by those kind of folksy hipster music video clip with a um, 60s science fiction flavor to it um they're kind of focused on the ultimate futility of life's conquests and successes but with a very kind of Australian focus um and so all the work From um, from this particular clip was designed to look like a stop motion animation, sort of in the vein of Monty Python. And here you can see um, a kangaroo and an emu from the from the coat of arms, Australian coat of arms. Um, And um, this kind of opens up the video, and that they they're sort of jumping backwards to the beat of the music um, in the outback. Uh, This is a near naked man holding a. newborn baby at the steps of Parliament House in Canberra. Uh, This one is Kevin Rudd as a a vampire in reference to the pink bat controversy. Uh, This one references YouTube compilations um, that often go with this title, oddly satisfying, which feature sort of moving geometric forms, moving in these impossibly precise ways to one another. And here I've made my own version of these animations but backdropped them with um, political spectrum maps, which are used online to help chart a person's political persuasions. And I I noticed that the the colour schemes used in these political maps are near identical to the soft pastel colours often used in these oddly satisfying videos on YouTube. Um, And so I guess what I was trying to do here was kind of... um, Sort of explore the overlap, um, this kind of satisfaction that we have to sort of catalogue and categorise things. Um, here's, here's another slide. So it's just um, e- each of these works feature a red ball because there's a, a red dot that's used to position your place on these political spectrum maps. But here it's sort of animated and they're moving. Um, yeah. Um, this one, I suppose, is a sort of critique on ownership and capitalism. Um, it uses the aesthetics of a Target commercial with very upbeat music and very bright colors. Um, but here it um, reimagines John Batman, best known for his, his role in founding Melbourne as a as a shop mannequin, a naked shop mannequin. And the video focuses on the items listed in Batman's treaty, which read as a sort of shopping list where it's like, you know, 40 blankets, 20 axes, 30 knives. Hundred Scissors, um, all of these things that were um, placed in Batman's treaty for um, what is now Melbourne. Um, And the the image that you can see here is a collection of the objects and images which reference Batman. There's an old map of um, Melbourne that was drawn up um, for the treaty. Um, It includes Polaroid photos. I'm using images collected from the Melbourne hashtag on Instagram. So I downloaded those and then kind of worked them into um, Polaroids. And Batman also famously declared in his diary that um, this will be a place for a village. And it just seems like one of those um, naff sayings that you often see in um, Target or you know wherever else it might be. Um, uh, th- th- this one references those crazy walls that you often see in crime shows um, where the detective becomes completely obsessed with a case, but here the case being examined is Australian culture. Uh, here's a photo of Pauline Hanson. Uh, when she was on Dancing with the Stars, pinned to a message board. Uh, and this is this is another one. Um, it features, uh, I think, a photograph from um, Hey Hey, it's Saturday, a photo with Bert Newton accompanied with a post-it note that says, who is this man? And there's a sort of dark vignette around the outside to make it seem kind of, kind of mysterious and sinister. Um, and I, I, I've... I've very mindful of the time. I think I've probably ran out of time, but I just want to say three very quick things um, about the experience of watching the video when you when you go to the website. Um, when visiting it, it's um, obvious you don't have control over the navigation of the film and you can't determine its its duration. Um, so the experience of watching it is kind of more akin to watching a film at a cinema or an art gallery. Um, so it really takes away a lot of those controls that I think people are used to when they're watching videos on the internet. Um, the, the film also has no beginning or end, rather. It's it's programmed to play on an autonomous and endless loop, which is backdated with a start time of the 1st of January, January 1901, Federation. So, so whenever you watch the work, it calculates where you should be in the video as if it had looped continuously since 1901. Um, and then I also think it's not clear what kind of space you're in because each each video has a load screen between them. Um, I'm not sure how convincing this is, but the, the, the facade of this load screen, because it's actually part of the video itself, um, is eventually revealed in one of the works where an old Australian flag falls from above and it, it covers one of the, the loading wheels. There's more I could say, but um, my hope is really, that the subjectivity of the viewer can really be acknowledged in in this work um, and that it sort of really functions as a sort of a, a giant audio visual collage um, hopefully mirroring how our culture and media seem to be increasingly fragmented and yeah collaged so that that's all from me thank you
1: thanks sean thank you that was Great, and we'll have more time to discuss um, each of the works towards the end. Um, But last but not least, I'm pleased to introduce uh, Zeni Baig. Zeni is an artist and filmmaker who is interested in hidden and contested histories. She works with film, drawing and installation to explore ways in which we can live and be in the world differently. Sani's Echo Open Commission, Magic Mountains, comprises five new interactive video works. Magic Mountains draws on family and literary history as a basis from which to explore themes of isolation and sickness, and quoting her, the urgencies and anxieties over our current world, immunity, contagion, solidarity, individualism, and liberty, authoritarianism. Thanks, Sani.
0: Over to you. Hey, am I here and everyone can see that? Great. Um, so hi, thank you um, Bianca and thanks to Akka for having me as part of this project. It's been, it's been really great. Um, just uh, description first, uh, I'm sitting in a kind of crowded studio which is also the spare room in my house. Um, there's a bunch of kind of messy stuff behind me which would be a little hard to describe. I've got long red hair pale skin and freckles and I'm wearing a jacket which is actually from a previous uh, project called the Beehive. Um, So it's got kind of bees and like green stuff on it. Um, I am on Darul lands, unceded Darul lands um, and I would like to um, pay my respects to the traditional owners um, of this land and to elders past and present, and to acknowledge that um, this was never ceded, um, and to show my respect for land rights and sovereignty of Indigenous peoples. Um, so just to start, uh, I'm a video artist, and um, as Bianca said in the introduction, I'm kind of interested in repressed and hidden histories, just to give a little bit of a snapshot of some other projects i worked on before I talk about this one, um, I, I was uh, involved I uh, did a, a large commission for um, ACME a few years ago called The Beehive, which was um, looking at the unsolved murder of Juanita Nelson, who was um, a campaigner for low-cost housing in Kings Cross in Sydney. Uh, this is a cold case that's still unsolved. Um, she disappeared at um, the Girls, which is a club in Kings Cross um, in July 1975. Um, and so I made a nonlinear video which uh, explored multiple interpretations of of what happened to her, her and, and, and her life. Another project that I was involved in was the City of Ladies, um, which was um, looking at one of the earliest Western feminist texts, which was written in Paris in 1402. Um, and it describes uh, Paris as a city that was built, governed um, and populated by women. So it's like a utopian imagining um, of from medieval um, Paris uh, and so I worked with a collaborator on that Elise McLeod and we morphed that into contemporary Paris um, but to look at um, I guess the sort of feminisms um, and the situation for women uh, so you know uh, there's many projects I could talk about but there's just two examples this one Magic Mountains was um I guess a, a new step for me um, in in a few ways but one of them is that this is about my own family um, so uh, I guess in a lot of my other projects I've looked at um historical moments or um worked with other communities or um stories that are you know that I'm fascinated with but are kind of separate to my own and and this one I was actually talking about um, I, I guess that's something that happens in in my own um, ancestral memory and experience so yeah that was that was a really um exciting part for me uh, in this project Um, So what I want to do is just show a little bit of the video just to kind of set the scene for it, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. And if there's time, I'll show another video at the end. Um, So here we go. We'll just let this one... So um, what this Magic Mountains um, relates to a specific location, which is actually really close to my house. Um, uh, I live in Bulli near Wollongong. Wurong, near um, and the site is um, the old waterfall sanatorium, um, which is a ruin. So here's some images I took um, visiting that site. Um, and what it was was a sanatorium for people uh, who had TB. Um, and so it was set up well, the uh, the time that my story intersects with it was around the 1930s. I think it was set up at the beginning of the 19th century and closed by about the 1940s. Um, And it was for, it's where people who were, who had TB were forcibly quarantined during the TB pandemic. Um, And the site was situated in the bush to be far enough away where people who were ill, um, who were suffering TB, would basically be too sick to be able to escape. Sometimes people would try and escape um, and get, you know, walk out through the bush to the train station, but it was pretty much too far and very few of them made it. Um, and the, the bush cemetery was um, close to the sanatorium but further into the bush, um, so yet further, more isolated. And it was put there so it was out of sight of the sanatorium, so people who, who were... Suffering TB wouldn't be confronted by the deaths of those who hadn't made it, Um, and it's a grave where about 2,000 people are buried mostly um, in unmarked graves. Um, And those 2,000 people were only 40% of the people who actually died at the sanatorium, but they they represented mostly the poorer people um, whose families were not able to reclaim their bodies for burial elsewhere. What you can see in these images is some headstones. So about 50 headstones um, were again wealthier people who could afford a headstone, um, and their their loved ones were given a, a proper burial. But the majority um, of the 2,000 people buried there were just given were just marked with a wooden peg um, or some some loose rocks around their grave. Sometimes these people were migrants who were taken straight off boats, who had found to have TB um, and were forced to be quarantined, died and buried there, often without their families ever being informed about what happened to them. Um, you know, often it was people who were marginalized or poor, migrants, indigenous community, homeless, um, the underclass, and so forth who, who ended up here and, and who ended up being buried in this grave. Um, so it's a place of quite a, a lot of sadness, and I visited it before the COVID pandemic hit and was very struck by it. At that time, I was really thinking of um, HIV and the AIDS, um, uh, you know, the breakout of HIV and AIDS um, and kind of how um, the stigma and disposable bodies, um, that was sort of how people were treated then. But obviously, with the with, uh, COVID pandemic, um, I was reminded again of this place and, and with a new context and, and, and a new meaning. Um, so just to explain my connection, this is a picture of um, my great-grandfather-in-law. Um, so this is Frank Murray. Um, and his father um, was, when he was eight years old, was taken to the Waterfall Sanatorium and died there. Um, and so Frank, um, who's 96 and quite an amazing guy, um, he he doesn't know where his father is buried and he's ne- he wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. Um, so for him, there's a sense of like a, a real gap in his family tree of of just losing this part of of his family, um, and so I was interested in sort of uh, just thinking about what that was like, and I was very moved by the stories of old people who were dying during COVID and didn't weren't able to have their family around them. Um, you know, it reminded me of, of this situation um, and just how hard and and sad that that would actually be. And I was also thinking about this is a picture of my daughter, um, and for uh, she's nine years old, um, and so she. eight when we made the film which is the same age that Frank was when he lost his father to TB of what it's like for a a kid to grow up um, when the world just is as Sean said in his presentation really off kilter Um, and there's you know there's a lot of fear and anxiety Um, and so to kind of tie these threads together my daughter Sersha, and I and other members of the family went to this piece of bush um, to try and find the grave. Um, it wasn't a successful search um, and we didn't really expect it to be, um, but we were looking for the grave um, in a way, it was sort of um, it was the journey that was part of the process, and what, that was important. Uh, and the finding the grave, we, we we didn't expect to do that because you know it was only marked with a wooden peg, and um, there was a bushfire that had gone through that area, so most of those markers have have been destroyed. But the search itself was kind of closing that loop, um, and to try and connect the experiences of an earlier generation who, who'd survived TB. And, you know, I was thinking of, you know, I have many friends who were active in the HIV and AIDS um, pandemic as well, um, you know, and now COVID. So just, I guess, sort of draw, picking up the threads through the ages of how, how we have weathered and survived um, these pandemics and what how they have transformed and impacted on our lives as we go through them. Um, so in making this work, um, we had to really imagine Bernard, um, who is Frank's father, who died of TB because uh, Frank was only eight when he died. Um, And also um, he, you know, he wasn't able to go to his funeral. He doesn't know where he's buried. So there's a there's a real gap in his knowledge about that piece of family history. So we don't you know, when he was describing him, all he could say was that he was tall and that he was a smoker. And that's pretty much all that he really knew about his father. Um, And so when I was trying to think of how I would cast him and, you know, how I would actually put someone in the film because I wanted to sort of have the the dead walking in the film or being part of the film, I started to think about ancestral knowledge um, and how it can be broken and how it can be um, repaired, I guess, sometimes through art. um, And, you know, and I was interested in the fact that, Um, Bernard was the child of Irish migrants and there's a lot of of the Irish diaspora on both sides of my family, both in my partners and in my family. So I started looking at um, uh, rituals in Irish culture around, around death. One of them, which is coming up this weekend, is Halloween. Um, I guess the, you know it's believed that um, Samhain, which is the pagan um, Irish festival of the dead, is kind of an early form of, of Halloween where people would dress up in costumes and they would go. And it was really a form of wealth distribution where they'd kind of intimidate wealthier people to give sort of food, which is now the kind of trick-or-treating that has kind of emerged from American culture now. I looked at that and also some other rituals around um, the death, like, for example, the keening, which is a a ritualised form of singing, which is, um, you know, used in in Irish culture to um, basically create a porous kind of, um, a porous relationship between the living and the dead. So the the keener was usually a woman. She was usually barefoot. She usually had loose hair. um, And her singing was very wild. It was very emotional. It was really guttural. Um, and you know, and it would be this kind of, create this porous boundary between the living who were mourning um, and the dead who had passed away. Um, so I, from all that, I created these sort of fantasy figures. They're not literal. They're not exactly how it's meant to be in Irish culture. They're not exactly how any of these costumes were. I mean, some of this material has been lost anyway, but I was kind of evoking the spirit or the feeling of that Um, And and the Keening performance, which is part of the video, is, again, not literal. Um, We just were evoking it um, to try and get the feeling of what it might be like to kind of um, properly mourn the dead because these people, the 2,000 people who died of TB, weren't properly mourned because they were buried alone um, without their families. Um, And to to sort of cross that bridge between um, those who had passed and those who who remain. so we shot mostly around the grave site. That's a whole story. I don't know how much time I've got or whether I've gone over time, but it's actually a restricted area, so you're not allowed there at all. Um, right down to two days before I was filming, I didn't have permission, and just at the 11th hour, the last minute, I managed to get the council um, and the New South Wales Department of Health to allow me on the site, even though, you know, I am a uh, family of people who are buried there, it's still a restricted site. So that was quite stressful down to the wire. So that's where most of the project was filmed. Then we also filmed here this tunnel, which is a, an abandoned railway tunnel in Helensburg, so just down the road. I chose this because the last place that Frank could remember his father was on the train station when he said goodbye and he was taken to the sanatorium, and I felt that this abandoned train station was a good place to sort of represent some sort of portal to the other world. So you go into the dark tunnel and it's like you're sort of entering the underworld and it's like a sort of death, a moment of transition from the living to the dead as the figures kind of walk along the track and into the tunnel. One of the themes that um, I was interested in this work is um, there's the Arundhunti Roy quote that a lot of people have been um, quoting in reference to COVID where she talks about it as a portal, um, you know, pandemics. Historically, been a break with the past and allow this potential where we could we re- imagine how the world could be, and certainly that's one interpretation. And I feel that's in my work. But then another one is also that perhaps it's a loop, um, so sort of closing the experiences of you know TB in the 1930s and the way that um, you know people who were suffering TB were treated and particularly how the the consequences of that pandemic fell most heavily on the poor and the migrant and the dispossessed and um, and those who are part of diasporas to today where, you know, COVID, it's the same story. Um, And so I guess uh, in the work there, there's this potential, is it a loop or is it a portal? And, you know, I feel like um, that is unclear. That's probably up to us in terms of um, whether we repeat how we know that pandex, pandemics have played out in the past um, or whether we um, actually kind of create some sort of break um, and, you know, move to a more caring um, and more just way of dealing with these issues. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Um, that's I'll stop sharing now and, and um, I'll head back to the group.
1: Thanks, Annie. That was great. Um, and- might ask um, Leuli and Sean to join us as well. If you can turn on your videos. Brilliant, yay. Um, great, well, thank you so much. That was really insightful and it was great to see um, your works. Congratulations again. It's, they're really fantastic works. And even for me coming from ECHA, experiencing these works online and on a digital platform, there's so, a very unique experience so that's i guess that's one of the ways that i'd like to um, approach this uh, panel discussion um we've got 10 minutes but i i've got tons of questions but i'll try try and keep it short um what really struck me with all of your works is um I think this idea of making connections, whether it be through visuals, through archives, um, through interactions and stories, um, and also this idea of connecting with an audience um, digitally and in the online space, um, and there's this something quite pertinent about this conscious effort of entering the digital realm, of um, entering um, and accessing the works of art um, and making connections through that. So I, I wonder if you guys can share a little bit about how you view um, the audience in this case, and what are your considerations um, when developing a work that is experienced solely through the digital? Um, and maybe um, we can start with Leuli. Thank you.
2: Um, I, j- I wanted to say that, um... The, I, for this project I researched like thousands and thousands and thousands of images of Barcloth originally from the Salmon Archipelago pre-colonization or like early years of colonization before the formal German and American split. Um, so the majority of our visual culture is already far away from us. So I think the digital kind of opportunities also to connect. Um, and because you know majority of humanity is unable to gather currently um there are a lot of barriers to digital access um all around the world in different kinds of communities but um i just hope that and like it's funny because this has actually circulated. my work has like gone into a few of like the local paper back home in samoa um, which i didn't expect and things like that but um uh the archive is also a way to ensure that at least my uh, international community of someone, artists and writers and curators will be uh, represented within it. So then they'll <laughs> see it. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's brilliant. Um, lately I, I also, it's very, just accessing the archives and this presence, it'll, it'll be great to know um, how you'll sort of progress this archive into the future, especially that it's such an important sort of art historical um capturing art history through archives like you mentioned and yeah it's it's fantastic and yeah great great to hear also just how um, much is involved in your research in developing this work um yeah it's yeah very very great all really insightful um sean do you have any any um comments or about just uh, sharing a little bit about how you um approach the digital in creating this work
3: how I approached the digital,
1: yeah, and in digital audience as well.
3: Yeah, um, well, I, I guess um, I don't know if I'm the, the exception here. Of, if everybody was jumping on and looking at lots of art when we went into lockdown, but I, I didn't. Um, um, I didn't. I didn't really look at much art at all, because um, most of most of the I think most of the attempts to try to translate um, exhibitions online are kind of. I don't know, I just found a lot a lot of the implementation a bit naff and boring and um, um, nowhere near as good as the real thing. Um, and I think that is because um, I think a lot of the implementation didn't really kind of make use of what, what the medium, it was sort of trying to re- recreate a, a real space or a real world onto a digital world. Um, so I was kind of really mindful of that when I was making my work. And uh, I'm also an art teacher, but I, you know, really try to encourage my students to say, you know, like, you know, art does not need to be entertainment. Um, It can be boring. That can be part of what the work is about. But for this one, I was actually kind of mindful to try to make something that was sort of um, entertaining, not just entertaining an idea, but actually kind of a bit more like entertainment because um, I was sort of quite mindful of the idea that the the work is not situated in a pristine white gallery space. Um, It's amazing how much time and Um, dedication somebody will give to a video an art video in a gallery that you wouldn't even give half a second to if it was on your Instagram feed so I was kind of mindful of where the work was located and that it's actually kind of situated in amongst you know somebody chatting on their email or um, checking other websites on Instagram it's kind of mixed in with all of this other kind of stuff so um, I mean the work I made isn't like super super like entertainment it's not like blockbuster Hollywood sort of thing but I did try to kind of it makes use of music quite a bit and it has a kind of particular pace to it. And I wanted to kind of mirror some of the pace that I think is kind of inherent with a lot of the way that we're using online and media kinds of technologies.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Very interesting. And, again, this whole idea of, um, I guess, throughout lockdown, just the abundance of content and, like you said, um, online exhibitions or virtual um, exhibitions yeah there's it's just there's been quite a lot of them throughout lockdown
3: yeah I, I, I should probably say maybe i was being a little bit too cruel about n- not watching <laughs> looking at any online art because um I, when i mentioned i was a teacher i was also doing like online teaching with the students and so i just felt completely fatigued with screens and any opportunity where i didn't have to like be in a google meet or a zoom or be checking emails was um you know it was amazing so um to think of then looking at art or looking at some virtual exhibition after I had been on a computer for six hours already in the day, it just wasn't that appealing to me.
1: Zani, do you want to add in or just your thoughts on digital?
0: Uh, I, I like, I enjoyed the web part of it, like it's mine's basically a video website, I guess, um, and so it. It allows people to look at the stories in any order and also to stay as long as they want. I think the thing that Sean said is, you know, um, people do get fatigue. Um, So, you know, you can swap between a story whenever you like. And for me also, it's not exactly a touch screen, but the idea was like um, touch is part of um, contagion um, so that you use the power of touch, which is also the power of healing, but it's also potentially the power of contagion to sort of navigate between the stories.
1: Thanks, Zanny. We actually have a few questions from the audience, so we'll try and um, address them. So first one is from Max, um, and he asked, um, I'm interested to ask about the ways in which each of the works speak across generation. In Leili's case, to ancestral knowledge, in Zanny's case, to family histories, and in Sean's case, back to Australian Federation. So, yeah, um, maybe we can start with Sean.
3: Could could you rephrase that for me? And sl- oh. so so how the work speaks about different generational. I, I, maybe I missed just one bit there.
1: Yeah. So um, Max's question is about um, just the ways in which each of your works um, speak across generation, and also to this idea of of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you can share a little bit about that in your work.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I guess with with mine um, I, I was um, kind of um, playing. Like time was quite elastic, I think, in in the work, Um, and uh, I I think I mentioned at the end when I was um, speaking before um, during my presentation, like at at the very end, that the work really kind of um, um, restricts that kind of on demand quality of online media that we've come to so um, that we've come to expect, Um, and even when I view my own work, I find it quite frustrating because there's no way to pause it or you know, um, scrub through the video and go to the end, it's impossible for the viewer to actually know um, how long it even goes for. Um, so I, I wanted to play with that sense of time. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it's also playing on an independent loop to the viewer again. So it's kind of subverting that on-demand quality again, except it's starting from that starting point of 1st of Jan 1901. So i um, I, I like that idea as the starting point because the, the, the work does reference um, a kind of um, Australian perspective, uh, well, different kinds of Australian perspectives um, and kind of like infusing them in, into the work, um, like particularly with Australian politics or um, um, references to the land and that and that sort of thing. Um, so um, and I guess then also the starting point kind of harks back to that ancient Greek theory of of the world being balanced. So there's all these kinds of different time scales. I think embedded in the work one way or another. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Sean. Um, I, I, re- I really like that um, when you mentioned about time being elastic um, and not knowing that it's sort of going in a loop. And I thought Zani, you might jump in in terms of how you framed um, the series of videos um, that. Uh, made up your work and how you work with, with again that sense of time but also how your sort of family histories and speaking across different generations and talking to your um, uh, father-in-law have help, helped sort of um, contribute to this process of creating the
0: work yeah, so one of my, um, I've got different ways you can interact with the videos, but one of them is a loop um, and the other one sort of end and go back. And again, the viewer can't control them. A little bit like what Sean was saying. Um, you just have to sort of drop into this world and you don't know how long they play for. And you sort of, but you can shift away whenever you want, just using the the, um, the navigation tools at the, at the edge of the video. Um, I guess the question was about ancestral knowledge. Um, and for me, that's a bit broken. Um, I think the Irish diaspora, um, has tended to, um, you know, access its white privilege and um, forget its roots um, and so sort of become part of the, even though, you know, having historically been a subject of colonialism, having to be sort of become part of the colonisers. Um, and so I was trying to just go drill back and just sort of look into that history and find, you know, what was, um, you know, potentially still um yeah, interesting there that I could sort of work with. um, And for me, it was this thing about how to relate to the debt. And I think the COVID crisis really has made all of us think about our own mortality, um, you know, both as a human society um, and also individually. So I was just thinking about, yeah, how we approach death um, and, you know, the rituals associated with it, which, um, you know, have been really sort of, um, yeah, I guess stereotypical sanitized you know and I was looking at this dirtier
1: kind of way um, that's back in the ancestral roots. Thanks so much Um, uh, Leoli I'm really happy for you to um, share your question to Zannie, um directly.
2: I was asking uh, do you think that the vignette works assist in healing your ancestors experiences by creating new representations for, that are kind of a salve for those absences?
0: Yeah I mean um we really wanted to find his grave and I think you know that would have been a really healing moment for Frank. I mean Frank's too old to actually go there in the bush um, but we kind of knew that wasn't going to happen so for me this was just getting as close as we could like using art as a way to kind of just symbolically um, create that meeting point with the ancestors because we couldn't actually do it in you know physically with a grave. Yeah. Beautiful.
2: Um, And I might just add, um, in terms of um, my work, my grandmother, who's the oldest artist in my family, died in the time that I was um, making this work. And I wasn't sure I would even want to make artwork. And um, with COVID, no one in my extended family who live in New Zealand, Canada, the US and Australia were able to go home for the funerary ceremonies, which take a few days. And so it was very, like now I realize it's a very um, commonplace experience this year that um gone to weddings on Zoom and Facebook Live, but also to go to funerals um, on uh, Zoom and Facebook Live, which is a, um, a way to connect that we didn't have. Or, you know, I think this technology existed last year, but people didn't really do it. Um, and by necessity, we are doing it. And so I think in a way, um, wanting to connect, she was a master weaver um, and experimented in customary weaving and um, dyeing and things um, with natural materials in Samoa. So I think in a way I'm wanting to like kind of speak to her legacy and connect to that practice. Um, There are Barcloth makers in the islands, but I really wanted people to think of video and photography as another surface of Barcloth painting um, and kind of bring the language that we've lived with for thousands of years into the future with us into like a digital space
1: thank you leili for um sharing your really personal stories and um and to sean and Zanny for sharing just how much is involved in the process and in your research um just before we wrap up i'd like to address this one last question from the audience that sort of leads into my final question um and it's um the question is from Van, and she says she's interested to hear um, how your individual practices have changed or been impacted um, this year. Um, and also, I guess, my following my sort of final question and reflection on um, your thoughts on the future of art making and art practice and art exhibiting or art curating. Um, and yeah, if you can share a little bit about that, um, I might hand it
0: over to uh, Zannie first, if you'd like. Oh, so is this impacted by COVID? Is that the question? Sorry? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Look, this film was really hard to make um, because of COVID, like really hard. Um, It was hard to get a team together. Um, The tunnels are humid, um, so that's a COVID risk. Um, So the numbers of people in there was really um, restricted. The Aboriginal elder who did the smoking ceremony, you know, COVID risk, health, complicated health issues, you know, old person Frank was 96 so we all had like so there's just so many factors I had so many COVID tests and um but you know it was really also amazing to get through all that and to, to do it um you know As I said in the work, look, I teach at universities. I think some really sad things are happening um, for art in universities right now where COVID's a little bit of an excuse for a neoliberal restructuring um, where, you know, a lot of jobs are being lost and a lot of, you know, art education, quality of art education has been compromised. So, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, portal or loop, I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know. I hope it's a portal. Yeah, but it's really hard to protest too when we can't gather, you know. So, you know, I went to the early Black Lives Matter protests down here in Wollongong and they were banned by the police even though football was happening and everyone was shopping. I mean, you know, there's a lot of factors going on, um, I think, right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Such a changing landscape this year and you're right, it's a sort of really responsive um, actions as well. Uh, Leuli, do you want to weigh in on the last conversation?
2: Yeah, I think um, like everybody who's an artist or curator, writer, everything I had planned for the year was cancelled or put off till next year or, you know, just evaporated. Um, And then all this other stuff happened and now we're working harder than we were before. Um, And I think uh, I was already kind of focusing on making video um, and poetry, which can travel very easily as digital files. So that's kind of working out. But um, most of this time I've lived in uh, remote or regional Australia and different parts of the Northern Territory. So, uh, the internet is also like, uh, the only kind of kind of connection to constellation of peers around the world. Um, and like I watched and heard of screening here with friends for the imaginative film festival had a pass and we were able to watch indigenous films from around the world broadcast from Toronto. So these kinds of like strange bypassing of, um, you know, normally the art center here doesn't really offer, um, like the, the film screenings are French cinema. It's not really indigenous cinema. There's these kinds of ways of getting around, there's kind of opportunities um, through this increased digital time to work laterally and, you know, kind of have conversations with curators on, on Instagram just from liking a few images and then end up working on a project together. So I'm definitely feeling um, from the relative safety of being in the Northern Territory, um and being in the bush up here that um it's um yeah, it's a time of rethinking everything.
1: Thanks, Layuli. Uh, Sean, you close the conversation.
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, um my my practice obviously changed during um lockdown because um I was really focused on finishing this work. Um I'm not sure what it's gonna look like. Um you know, in the next six or twelve months, um, I guess it depends on the nature of the situation and whether we end up going back into lockdowns or whatnot. Um, I think, though, that like maybe what the what the future would look like. Um, I, I think we need to kind of think of ways of infusing, I think, art into everyday life, um, and it and it for it not to be just this kind of commercial venture or. Um, or something that only happens in um, kind of dedicated physical spaces, but to kind of really use art as a sort of approach to living um, and to think of other ways of being in the world because that's what it's really about. And I think um, I think that's what we sort of need more than ever. Um, you know, we've got COVID and um, rent is expensive for galleries and there's environmental destruction. I mean, there's lots of things kind of going on in the world but I think too often, particularly from um, in politics, it's it's sort of like business as usual. It's always this impulse: we need to go return to things as they as they have been. Um, when really we should be doing something, I think, a bit different. We should be trying anyway.
1: Thanks, Sean. That was a beautiful way to close our session. And I'm sorry that we're a little bit over time. But thank you, Leuli, Sean and Zanny, um, for your time this afternoon and for your generous insight that you shared on your practice and your research. Um, I want to also thank our interpreters, Tyson and Rebecca, um, and to my colleague Miriam Kelly for assisting with the delivery of today's event. And finally, thank you to everyone for joining us today and for listening in. Um, This talk has also been recorded um, to listen as a podcast, and it's available from wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And it will also be available to watch again via ACCA's Facebook page um, with the visuals as well. So thanks again, everyone, and have a lovely evening.